So I was joking with Scott this week. It's been so long since I've been in the pulpit that I might have forgotten how to preach. Um, this has been a weird season, uh, and, and some of that is in preaching rotation. And then when I was then sick um, during the week I was supposed to be up, that all of a sudden just, all of a sudden, it, it's been a month. Um, and some of you say, well, what does the pastor do when he's not preaching? And I will tell you, pastor does a lot of things that don't involve preaching. And it's a joy to do all of it. It's a joy to do the work of the Lord in this place with people such as you. Because this church is really a church. I love this church. I do. I love you all. Some of you may be new here today. Um, and I just want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're here I'm so glad that you get to, uh, to be a part of, of what we are and that, that you might become part of what we are and, and looking at, at what the Lord has for us. When I was in undergrad, I was a youth ministry major, um, and what that meant is I played a lot of guitar and a lot of ultimate frisbee. It also meant the hardest academic program at my college which may seem really weird when you think about it, because usually the joke is youth pastors are kind of lazy and other such stuff. They're just kind of goofballs. Um, but the reality is, is our program was designed to weed people out. Because everybody who wants to be, who, who feel called to ministry, wants to work with teenagers. Everybody who had a good youth, youth ministry experience growing up thinks, you know what I'm going to do with my life? I'm going to be a youth pastor. So our academic program started with about 150 students in Youth Ministry 101. By Youth Ministry 102, it was down to about 120. By 103, we were somewhere around 90. And when I graduated, there were about 12 of us. Okay, I mean, it's about that extreme Because doing the work of the Lord is important, and it's serious, and it takes a lot of work. One of the things that we had was scripture memory tests as part of every week in those early youth ministry classes. And when I mean scripture memory, I don't mean that like we had to memorize a verse, but we, we had to memorize the ha half of a chapter. And we had to do it word for word, with punctuation, and everything. And I will tell you, I believed that I could not memorize Scripture. It's no longer something I believe. I think God actually can work in power even in those of us who hate memorization. But I remember going back to those tests, and, and I, I would just cram for them every, every week that we had them. And so, you know, if the test was Tuesday morning, Monday night, about 9 o'clock, I would start. And I would stay up all night memorizing word for word these passages. And I will tell you, in the course of about eight, nine hours of memorization, you can remember something for about 30 minutes. <laughs> Just enough to take the test. But not enough to actually learn or long-term memory the, the passages. I struggled with my memory. Struggled with it. I struggle with the idea of remembering. My worst academic classes were always history classes where you had to memorize names and dates and places. 
That is, until I got to seminary and took a history of the Christian church class. And at the beginning of it, the professor handed us a list and said, here's 10 names, here's 10 dates, and here's 10 places that you need to know. You don't need to memorize any other. That was a gift. Okay, that was a gift because it was not a hundred dates and a hundred names and a hundred places that all just jumbled up. But the real th amazing thing about it is that as you start learning church history, I would say you want to remember these things because they are just important. Important dates where some heresy were, was quashed, some rebellion of anti-biblical faith was put down, a any number of things. And, and, and memorizing this stuff became important. I hope you know that remembering as a Christian is incredibly important. That's what we're going to be talking about today is remembering. We're in John chapter 16. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. As Don pointed out last week, probably is a good idea to bring your Bible to church. John chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 1. Hear the words of Jesus. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you, that you may remember that I told them to you. Would you guys pray with me? God, as we come before your word today, Lord, I know that the place I will get in trouble with is the stuff between the lines on my pages that have been prepared. God, this is a heavy passage. This is a passage that we also all need to hear, that we need to be in, that we need to remember moving forward. And God, I just pray that today, the words that I would speak would be your words. God, that they would be for the building up of the church, for the glory of, of your name and for the growing of the kingdom, which is before us by the power of the Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear this passage today, to understand it, and to live our lives out of it. And God, I pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus tells us in this passage what his goal is. That when the hour comes, we would remember. Now we need to remove right now the concept of, from, from remembering, the idea of academics and tests. Most of us, when we think of memory or remembering, it is in the context of maybe what I just talked about, of academics, of trying to pass a test, of trying to get through that Spanish class, which I also struggled with, or trying to get through whatever history class or whatever else it is. Friends, I want us to remove the idea of remembering knowledge today. Because when Jesus talks about remembering here, he is not interested in us taking a test and passing it. Instead, I want us to have two images through the whole sermon. 
of what it means to remember when Jesus talks about remembering here in this passage, and I think all across Scripture. And don't forget, remembering is one of, if not the greatest, most often commanded uh, promise or, or, or commandment in Scripture. We are told over and over and over again to remember. But what kind of remembering are we supposed to have as Christians? Are we supposed to be able to recite verse by verse, chapter by chapter of Scripture? Are we supposed to be able to declare what the creeds are of our historical faith? Are we supposed to know the order of the books of the Bible? Are we supposed to have all kinds of information memorized? On the one hand, I would argue yes. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. When he talks about memory, I think we need to have two images in mind. The first is that of a skilled worker. A skilled worker. I love watching people who are really good at their jobs. Skilled tradesmen who have been doing what they do for decades. Those experts in the field that when they do something, it's just like, whoa. One of the things in home renovation that I hate doing is drywall. I hate all things drywall. What would take me weeks, maybe even months to fully finish by myself, you, you get someone who's been doing it who knows it, and it may literally just take them hours. See, when somebody's really remembering, when we're talking about remembering today, when they're really doing it, it is about muscle memory. It is what I'm going to refer to in this sermon over and over again as second nature, maybe even first nature. That when we are called to remember by Christ, it is as a skilled craftsman doing their thing. In some ways, it should be almost effortless. It should not require a lot of thought and thinking because by the time we've done it so many times, we just do it now. The second image that I want us to have is that of a trained soldier. A trained soldier who goes through boot camp, drill after drill after drill. One of the images I have of that, and I'm sure it's because of movies, is, is that of the taking apart, the cleaning, and the putting back together of firearms. I have an image in my head of somebody being able to, with a blindfold on or in the dark, take their gun apart, clean it, put it all back together, and use it in seconds, right? In seconds. We all have that image, I think, if we've seen any movies of training and those things, because what it is is muscle memory, and it is second nature. And as Christians, we should be skilled workers in the things of faith, amen? And we should be soldiers trained and ready for anything. This is remembering without remembering. Remembering without remembering. It should not take thought when the dilemmas of life are before us in what we're going to do and how we're going to respond. But because we have grown and we are growing and we are disciplining ourselves 
When it comes time to remember, as Christ says, we're already doing it. It's already a part of us. In fact, what we, I think, discover in Scripture is that if we've been a Christian for really any amount of time, and it's not second nature, when the trials come, we're not going to do the right thing. If we have to think about it, it might already be too late. Today we're talking about remembering. And what we're going to see in our passage today, these three things. First is a warning that we need to remember. A warning that we need to live. It needs to be a second nature warning for us. Something that is always ready, ready in our minds, always present. The second thing we're going to look at today is, is remembering where persecution comes from. To remember where persecution comes from, not so we can pass a test, but so that we're ready for it when it comes. The third thing that we're going to see is, is how we remember the faithful path in persecution. Now last week, Don brought us through the end of chapter 15, which talks about the beginning of this message. The world hated Jesus, therefore the world will hate us if we are in any way like him. Today's passage comes out of that, and as I already read, Jesus' goal is that we would not fall away, and that is the warning that we need to remember always. Christian, there is a risk to you falling away. There is a chance, maybe a high chance for some of you, that you will fall away. And the moment we forget that, we're in trouble. The moment we forget that at any moment, any one of us might fall away, wander off, is a very real chance. Now, there are a lot of reasons people fall away. I see people fall away because of sin, right? They enter that, that road of temptation. They give into that temptation. They find themselves going down the road of sin, and what they discover is, I really like this. I want to continue this. And so they go down that path, but what happens is it's really hard to maintain a solid relationship with Jesus while we are intentionally going down sin's path. And so we fall away. I see people fall away into apathy when they forget how big and awesome God is when they forget the sacrifice that Christ made for us, that he unapathetically gave his entire life that we might live, suffered and died on the cross. And yet there are times when you and I forget that, and in the apathy we wander off. Distraction causes people to fall away. There's a lot going on for all of us. There's a lot of things, a lot of stuff. There's a lot of ideas in this world that are competing. And sometimes we go down a path and we find ourselves wandering off, falling away. Sometimes we fall away because things get too hard. Because Jesus asks a little too much of us. Jesus asks everything from us. Everything. And there are times when we come up against that and we think, no, Lord, not this time. Or I don't have the strength right now. 
And so rather than trust in him and lean into his strength for us and let him lead us, we wander off, we fall away. In our passage today, the reason why we might fall away is because of persecution. Persecution. We saw this last week, that the world hates Jesus and very well may or will hate us as well. Now, there's a lot of ideas or thoughts about what persecution is, and we want to look at what Jesus says in our passage today. And what he gives us, I think, are two categories of what it means to be persecuted. We see them in verse 2. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. So hear this. The first one is to put out. The second is, it reads, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So on the one hand, you have being put out. We're going to talk about that. And then you also have being murdered. You have death. When Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, look, you are going to be put out of the temple. That's something we don't fully understand. If today, for some reason, and I can't think of any reason with any of you right now, I were to suddenly look at you and think, you know what needs to happen with you? We need to put you out of the church. To some of you, that would hurt. That would sting. It would be hard. For some of us, this is our family, right? We start to understand what it means to be put out only if we see this group of people in this room right now as family. For the Jew, for Jesus' Jewish disciples, the idea of being put out of the temple may be the most terrifying thought they could have. James Montgomery Boyce gives us three areas that this would affect. They are their sacred life, like their religious life, their social life, and their economic life. To be put out of the temple means you lose your sacred life, your social life, and your economic life. Let's take a look at those really quick. When it comes to the sacred life of a Jewish person, the temple was the center. It was everything. It was in the temple that sacrifices were made. Sacrifices were the center of the Jewish faith. They were the means by which you could be forgiven. To be put out of the temple meant that nobody is sacrificing for you anymore. It essentially means you can't be saved, no matter what. It means to be put out. You are left without hope for the sin in your life. Not only, though, do you miss out on sacrifice, you also miss out on the worship of God's people. Scott earlier read Psalm 42 for us. As the deer pants for flowing water, so my soul longs after you. As you read through that whole psalm, what you discover, and we studied this last summer right after uh, we got back together as a church, actually, that entire psalm is about King David being excluded from worship that he so desperately wanted to be in. And I remember thinking last summer, man, I wish I had had that right at the beginning of the pandemic. Because David's words of longing are to be in the presence of God, with the people of God, in the house of God. Anybody remember that? 
to be in the presence of God, with the people of God, in the house of God, to be excluded from the temple, to be put out of the temple, is to lose that opportunity. It is to lose worship. It's also to lose the word of God. Can any of you imagine what it would be like if someone came to you today and said, I'm taking all your Bibles and your apps and your phones don't work anymore and you can't meet with people and read scripture. How many of us would find that to be a terrible thing? How many of us wouldn't, wouldn't change a single thing about our week? We're talking about a people in a time that didn't have this. The temple was the only place you could go. The synagogues were the only place you could go to hear the word of God. To be put out of the temple is to lose your sacrifices, to lose your worship, and it is to lose the word of God. The only thing you'd have left is what you have memorized. How many of you have enough of this book right here memorized that if that happened, it wouldn't be a problem? What if things drastically changed in this country and we could no longer openly carry a Bible and you couldn't find it on the internet? How long would some of us last? To be put out of the temple was to lose your sacred religious life, but it also meant losing your social life. See, for the Jewish person, in this time, the temple was where you gathered. Not just with the extension, but with your family too. To be put out of the temple meant to lose your friends and your family. They're no longer going to associate with you. Even if they wanted to, they can't. Because remember, your sacrifices are no longer happening. Which means if you get dirty spiritually dirty, if you touch a dead body, if you're a woman at a certain time of the month, if you have intercourse, if you touch feces, if you pass by someone else who has done any of those things, then you are ritually unclean, and anyone who talks to you, interacts with you, touches you, becomes the same. So if you've got someone who's been excluded from the temple, what it means is that everybody you know is leaving you. They're not going to be around you anymore. You are alone. You are a spiritual leper, excluded from the community. But not just your religious life, not just your social life and your family, as if that wasn't enough to lose, but you also will lose your economic life. I mean, because after all, if you've been excluded from the temple, who's going to hire you? Or if you have your own business, who's going to come buy stuff from you? To be put out of the temple is to lose everything. And this is what Jesus says will happen to his disciples. He does not say if. He says when. He says there will be a time when they will do this. Now we see this, even now. 
We see this even now, don't we? Do we not live in a world right now that when we don't get with the party line, these things happen? Think about a cake baker in Denver. Right? You think about family that turns away and turns against. We live in a culture, in a world where we are at times, not always, being put out for what we believe by the very people who we think maybe shouldn't do that. I was thinking about this and then I had this sudden realization at men's breakfast yesterday that we literally have a man in our church who has been arrested for standing up for his faith in this town. If you missed men's breakfast yesterday, you missed something great. Women, I'm sorry, you weren't allowed. <laughs> so, we see the first thing in persecution is that people are put out. They are put out. They are excluded. And then Jesus says, whoever kills you, whoever kills you. Now here's the thing. Jesus says this to them as well, and it's going to happen. We see this. We see this. Right? It happened to Jesus first. Then you move forward and you start thinking about those who who would live, the, the early apostles, the early disciples who were killed for their faith. And we say, look, there is a time, there is a chance, there is a place. And we do not experience this here right now for the most part. But we do know we have brothers and sisters all over the world who are being killed. Don quoted um, a statistic last week. I believe it was a million people in a decade. A million Christians killed for their faith in a decade. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you who are of more value than any sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny me. I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says a whole lot to his disciples to get them ready for things that we are not ready for. I want you to hear this because there's a warning in this. There are all kinds of people who fall away for all kinds of reasons. Jesus says he doesn't want that for us. We need to remember the warning and not remember it like it's going to be on a test someday, but remember it like we are skilled workers and soldiers who are ready for it, for ready for whatever might come. That is the, the warning that we are called to remember in our passage today. The second thing that we are supposed to remember is from where persecution comes. We see in verse 2 to 3, Jesus says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. 
Now remember, Jesus is talking to a group of people who are all going to be put out of the temple. They are going to be excluded. They are going to be kicked out. He says, why? Because they are serving God. They believe that they are serving God. Friends, just think about the next two days of Jesus' life. This is the end. This is the night he gets arrested, the day before he gets beaten, nailed to a cross, and dies. Why? Because they are serving their God. You ever heard that Jesus never calls us to anything? That he doesn't already gone through himself? So we look at Jesus who is murdered in their belief of their serving their God. Then we go forward a couple years to Acts 7 to 8, where we see Stephen. Stephen, the, one of the first deacons. Stephen preaches a sermon, gets him in a lot of trouble. He gets killed for his faith. And here's what we read in Acts 8, 1 through 3. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. In entering a house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Jesus says, there will be a day when you will be put out and you will be murdered and they will believe they are serving the Lord. That they are worshiping God. That this is good. The second thing he tells us here is that it comes from people who do not know the Father or the Son. Now remember, he's thinking about the Jewish people at this time. He's thinking about those specific people. And he says they're worshiping God. They don't know the Father or the Son, which means they're acting outside of what God wants them to do. Now, we live in a different time, in a different culture, in a different place, but this truth still reigns. Persecution comes because of two things. We need to remember this. The first is that they are serving their gods. And the second thing, they do not know the Father or the Son. This does not need to be one religious group over another. And yes, there have been plenty of that throughout history. One does not need a deity in order to kill for a god. Let me say that again. One does not need a deity to kill for their god. For we are a people who make gods out of everything. We have the God of self, the God of pleasure, the God of the current cultural philosophy or theory. We have the God of sexuality. We have the God of everything. And people will kill for their gods. Whether that God is a God they believe is in heaven and looking down and is all-powerful, or that that God is an idea, 
or that that God is the thing they love in their life, that when they read the Bible or they see Jesus, they think this is coming against them. One does not need a deity to persecute others in service to their God. People who find will find the need to persecute, to exclude, to murder, to worship what they love. And it tells us that they don't know the Father or the Son. They don't know the Father and the son, or the Son. They don't know this, hear this. They do not know the forgiveness and love of God. They do not know the sacrifice that was made for them. They do not know. And that means that they are missing out on the best thing in the universe. They're missing out. And what is Jesus' response to people like this? This is important. What is Jesus' response to those who persecute in service to their God or gods and who murder because they don't know the Father or the Son? Luke 23, 24, what does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's Jesus' response to those who persecute in worship of their God who don't know the Father and the Son. Luke 19, 41 through 44, it says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and you will not, they will not leave one stone upon it in, in, in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus looks at the city of Jerusalem that is about to betray him and he weeps, not for himself, for them. Matthew 9, 36 to 38, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What is Jesus' response to the very people that are about to murder him and persecute him in worship to their God, who don't know the Father and the Son, friends, he pities them. He pities them because they are missing out on the greatest thing that has ever existed. They're missing out on him. Why is it so important that we remember with a second nature right? With a, a skilled worker's remembering and a soldier's muscle memory where persecution comes from. Because the people that may bring it upon us do not know what they're doing. They do not know what they're missing. And they need Jesus. Just as much as we did before we were rescued by the blood of Christ. Do we live here 
This is my question for us. Do we live in this? I heard someone uh, from last week or somebody else talking to someone else um, had said, look, if they come for me, I'm going to take a few of them with me. Right? If they're going to come against me because I'm a Christian, I'm going to take a few of them with me. Is that what Christ did? See, this is why it's so important to have a second nature in doing the right thing, in doing God's thing, in doing Christ's thing. Because how we respond if and when persecution comes to us matters. And it's too late if we have to think about it. We're also supposed to remember Christ's teachings with a second nature. Let me ask you, do you remember everything that Christ has said with a second nature? Do you? Here's what Jesus says. You need to hear this. Verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He says, I have said all these things to, keep, to you to keep you from falling away. And then in verse 4 he says, but I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus is talking about these things. What is these things? Well, there's a few options, and I think all the above are included, just so you know. The first thing we might think is we're going to go back to what Don read for us last week. Chapter 15, verses 18, or 16, rather, or 18 there, uh, through the end of the chapter. Right? These things refer to what Jesus just said. His first warning, that persecution may come, or that it will come, that we should expect that, that the world hates Christ and will hate us too. Church, do not be surprised if this all happens. I don't know how any of us can be standing there on the day that that happens and be like, I, I didn't see it coming. But how many times when we face trials of various kinds, do we take a step back and we just say, I and wasn't ready for it. There's no excuse to not be ready. See, this is key. Christian, we should not be surprised when persecution comes, when hardship at the hands of the enemies of God shows up. In fact, we should probably be surprised when it doesn't. Have you ever wondered where the persecution is in your life? Not that we should want to be persecuted. Hear me well on that. We have freedoms that we enjoy in this country. Jesus is clearly referring to what he just said in those verses before. But is that it? I don't think so. He says these things, he says these things twice, and he's pointing to the things that he's been saying. So we take a look back. What are the sort of things that Jesus has been saying? Well, John 14, 6. Just think through how any of this would be helpful on the day that persecution shows up. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 12, whoever believes in me also will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. John 14, 25, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance 
all that I have said to you. We're not even on our own to remember all this, church. We have the Holy Spirit to help us remember all this. John 15, I am the true vine. Abide in me. How important do you think it is to abide in Christ when persecution shows its ugly face in our lives? Jesus says, I've given you, told you all these things so that you might not fall away. John 15, 12, love one another as I have commanded you. That took a turn. John 15, 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Now let me just pause here. I am quoting a bunch of the verses over the last few chapters, some of the big kind of headline verses. Looking over this, what I see when Jesus says that he's given us, said all these things so that we would not fall away, is that he has given us all of these things, every one of these verses that I've just gone through, so that we won't fall away. And they include focusing on the nature of Christ, on who Christ is, Not only that, but on what Christ has done for us. But not only that, but what we, the church, are supposed to do for each other. Church, I am not afraid or nervous to go through persecution. What I would be nervous about is how many of you would leave me to myself. Now, I'll be honest, not really, because you are my family. But think about it. How much easier is it to go through any hardship when you've got people carrying you through? See, the command of the church, he says, look, all these things, that includes the command to love each other and to lay down one's life for another, is included in us not falling away. How many of you if I was arrested today, would take care of my family moving forward? It's a real question. It happened in Canada six weeks ago. I'm pretty sure most of you would. And that gives me a joy. It gives me a joy. When I think about what it would be like for the church to stand up together and face this stuff together and keep going. But the only way it's going to happen is if it's second nature for us. If we are skilled laborers in the Christian faith and we are soldiers for Christ, trained and ready for whatever may come. Now let me ask you, is when Jesus says, is these things just those verses right before it, are they just chapters 14 through 16? Or do you think he might be pointing even beyond that? Of course, he's pointing beyond that. Think about his words here. He says that his words are meant that we wouldn't fall away. Christ has said a lot of things. He said a lot of things. The things he tells us in Scripture so that we will not fall away. And let me tell you, that is in the face of persecution, but it is also in the face of sin in our lives and apathy, distraction, 
and all those other things that may pull us away. He has given us his words so that we will not fall away. Christian, if you fall away, you've got no excuse because he's given it to us. Are you a person of God's word? Are you a person of Christ's word? Or are you a person of Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, YouTube, old westerns, movies, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, any number of things. Any number of things. Here's the deal. I am fairly certain I know the Lord of the Rings better than I know the Bible. Okay? That's a problem, right? I mean, at least one of you should say, Matt, no. <laughs> like, great movies, even better books. But no. Will we fall away? Or, or will we be people who are second nature, remembering what Christ has done, is doing, and is speaking to us? Are we skilled laborers? Are we soldiers? Church, as you consider that in your own life, the question that I need to ask you and all of us is to consider where we are with the Lord right now. Because you are neither of those things if you don't know Christ. And in that case, you will either become a persecutor or you will let it happen. Or you could choose to follow Jesus Christ with the rest of us. Or maybe you are a Christian and when you think about whether or not you're a skilled laborer in the Christian faith or you think about whether or not you're a soldier for Christ, right, with that muscle memory, we're going to march forward together. You think, you know what, that's not me. Church, let me tell you, it needs to be. It needs to be. Whether we face this kind of persecution in our lifetimes or whether it's our kids in 25, 50, 60 years, or whether we go on mission to some place where this could happen to us next week, right? We need to be those kind of Christians. We need to be ready no matter what comes. If you're not ready yet, then today's the day to turn to Christ and say, Christ, make me ready. Make me ready. I can't do it on my own. We can't. We couldn't save ourselves on our own. There was no effort, no work we could do to save ourselves. Christ rescues us. He also will empower us to stand firm, to stand strong. If you need to give your life to Jesus today, come find me, Scott, Don, Stephen's back there, any number of people here who know Jesus, love Jesus. Talk to them about what it means to follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would be at work in us. I pray, God, that our hearts would be lifted and encouraged today. God, I do pray that we would not face this. But Lord, if we do, that we would face it together, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the wisdom of your word, to stand strong together. 
I pray, God, that we would be a people who see you over it all, sovereign, good, and king. We come before you, Lord, and I do pray, Lord, that if there is someone in this room who doesn't know you, that the Holy Spirit would bring them in, would, that they would recognize their, the sin in their life that keeps them from you, and that you would draw them to forgiveness and to new life as you have promised in your word. God, we thank you and we praise you and we come before you and we lift all this to you. Amen.